Steve and Kevin review 2022 for Vintage on episode 110 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 110 of So Many Insane Plays, our 2022 year in review. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Good riddance to 2022. Good to be here, Kevin. Happy New Year. (laughs) Happy New Year to you as well. And to all of our listeners, if you have any comments or questions or suggestions, you can tweet us at many insane plays. Still going. Email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. We're going to skip right over announcements for this episode, Steve, and get right into the heart of the matter. This is our annual year in review for 2022. And for review, if you are new to this show and or to this uh, style of episode, what we like to do is an annual review of all the events of a year for vintage in particular, which can include things like set releases, banner restricted changes, key deck changes, and other noteworthy events in the community or in the tournament scene. And we like to analyze the top performing decks of the year, the top performing cards, etc., and award at the end our moxies. Our moxie awards, which include new cards for the year, our deck of the year, and our story of the year. What's the one I'm forgetting, Steve? New new card, new set, new deck, or best deck, and oh, set. Story. That's yeah. right, I skipped set. Thank you. So we'll award those four moxies at the end of the show after all of our review. So let's kick things off with our timeline for 2022. I'll put music here. Steve, in the grand scheme of things and in the history of us doing this show, 2022 is oddly a light year. And the ways in which that manifests is mostly down to um, we had a, a relatively consistent appearance of impactful cards in Vintage. That's that's <laughs> not terribly unusual that but might be understatement but go yeah. ahead yeah um you know and we'll cover the reasons for that but notably this year featured no major format shakeups in the form of band or restricted changes steve you've been doing this and documenting it for a long time historically speaking how do you feel about a year that simply has no restrictions or bans <laughs> i love it um you know we've gone through these periods before it's just been a while because there's yeah. been so much activity you, you get these periods, what you call them fallow periods, where there's not much tinkering, and then you get a kind of burst of activity, because I think part of the reason for that is restrictions kind of beget, beget more restrictions, right? Because a restriction mm-hmm. is usually something that is central to the metagame. It's like, you know, metaphorically, it's a fulcrum that underpins the structure. It's like, you know, the stem of a globe, right? And if you take that out, the globe begins to fall down. It's like, or like taking, you know, the leg off the table is probably a better <laughs> metaphor, right? It's like right. you take one leg off the table, the table is immediately destabilized. And so you have to decide, does something else replace that? You know, you can prop it up with something or do you have to deal with the other legs as well? And so we've seen that, right? You restrict something from workshops, then you have to restrict something from the gush deck, then you have to restrict something from workshops and so forth. And I think the lack of restrictions 
tends to reflect one of two dynamics. Either it reflects a uh, philosophical disinclination in the in the community to advocate for restrictions, at least in terms of a majority and and or the louder voices, or it can actually reflect a sense that there is a dynamic healthy metagame, either by the policymakers or the community. Um, and those aren't necessarily objective facts, they're perceptual, right? It's like mm-hmm. when you get into you can get into a period where there's a lot of discontent in the format. And that discontent can be either objectively based on the data and empirics, or it can be based on sort of non-empiric objective dynamics, such as staleness, um, dissatisfaction with certain types of gameplay, um, a sense of the curdled metagame, right? And those different dynamics can bubble up and precipitate demands for change, even if, objectively speaking, the metagame seems fine. I mean, we've seen how discontentment in the world can royal politics in certain kinds of ways. The same is true of the quote-unquote politics of magic metagames. But so it's both philosophical and I would say empirical or objective. But I think things are pretty dynamic right now. And so it's hard to call for restrictions in a period of dynamicism. And that's that's probably one of the weirdest things about it, right, hmm. is that we've seen a lot of restrictions, the, the, the serial restrictions. The restrictions followed by more restrictions followed by more restrictions, at least in the 21st century, have tended to appear or accrue when people are dissatisfied with the stale metagame, not with, <laughs> you know, like say you get the workshop, you know, it's the gradual accretion and accumulation of stuff that causes people to become irritated, mm-hmm. um, you know, but there are also cases where you just have a, a bombastic new printing, and if the new printing uh pushes up or elevates the the if a new printing elevates existing dominant archetypes then people generally call for restrictions however if the new printings create new decks right then it's harder to get a restriction so you know treasure cruise and dig through time part of the reason those cards were so i don't know pick your adjective toxic corrosive damaging <laughs> to the metagame was because uh Xerox strategies were already so good, right? And so they just made them a million times better. Um, so those were gone. But when you have new cards come in, like remember how Lodestone Column came in, it survived a surprising a surprising period of time because it had, workshops had kind of receded a bit and that brought them back. So um, I think the immediate restrictions tend to happen when you have the interaction of a new card that is a new dynamic into the metagame that further elevates an already either dominant or tenuously dominant deck. Um, It takes longer for new decks to become so dominant based on new cards that they call for banning or restriction. That's why it took, I mean, it was about a year before the the companions were banned, right? How long did that take? That was more than six months at least. So, right? Yeah, um, Luris was banned. It was a year after. in, in, In May when I, Corey, no, hold on just a second. The, the Luris banning was immediate in vintage. Okay. Ikoria came out and then it was banned the next month. But the commanding rules changes happened a month after that. And it was quite a while before Luris was unbanned, I, which happened earlier last year. Right. I remember Luris being, having at least a couple of months. I don't think it was one month. It might've been like, imagine, it might've been most of two months. Yeah. 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 So I, that was I don't have the days here. 
that was a kind of a different case because it was a cascade across formats. <laughs> it, <laughs> it was. It like, was. Yeah. Yeah. So there and was the perception of that time period, I think, is extended in our minds because so much happened. <laughs> and also, it didn't help that the London Mulligan coincided with that. But I think in this century, in the main, uh, the, the cards that are most swiftly restricted are those that elevate already dominant strategies. Whereas it takes a, a longer lag, about a year, for cards that, that create new strategies to finally get the axe. Um, and well, also, and, and all those dynamics, just to kind of summarize again, are overlaid the question of general sentiment. You know, is the vintage community in a mostly passive mood or is it in an agitative mood? <laughs> and if it's an agitative mood and you have a number of prominent voices calling for restrictions and organizing for it, then I think it's more likely that things will happen. So it's an interaction and interplay of a number of dynamics. Hopefully that's clear and didn't sound like word salad. <laughs> well, you can highlight and this year in contrast with prior years using some of the examples you just used. We did not have anything in the year of 2022 that represents a structural change to the format. And by that, I mean something that's not just a printing, but something that really upends the way we consider the format like Companions did. We didn't have that this year. Whereas last year we had Luris... The, you know, the rules was changed two years ago, but Luris was reintroduced last year. Right. And so now we've had some chance to simmer on that, and Luris is no longer a disruptive, you know, a major negatively or disruptive force in the format. Similarly, we didn't have the, anything like the London Mulligan, which you alluded to, right? There was no rule change that, that up, upended the apple cart this year. And thirdly, I'd like to point out that we didn't have a Modern Horizons set, <laughs> right? And... Those have become famously disrupted the format. MH2 was just enormous and dominated our discussion and also our, you know, our impressions of the format last year. We didn't have anything like that. Everything we had this year was much more of a return to form, bread and butter, expansions, although there was a, you know, a high count of them, a high quantity of cards introduced. But the kinds of cards that you're going to hear us discuss when we get to our moxies are role players, functional cards that are much less splashy than Modern Horizons cards were. And I, for one, uh, share your sentiment in that I kind of like that. I, I'd like a year where the changes in the format are more organic. It, yes, there's integration of new cards and they're impactful, but it's more jockeying for position in, in more organic ways. So let's get into it. Let's do a month by month, shall we? Yeah, let's talk about it. It's mostly going to be set releases that we're here to talk about. That's, that's pretty much it. And so the first new set release of the year was in February, Kamigawa Neon Dynasty, which was a really cool set and introduced several playables into the format. And it also included in February some mechanically unique cards from the secret layer, which were the Street Fighter secret layer, though those were not <laughs> applicable to vintage. And I mentioned that just because in researching the, this episode, I it was reminded of the fact that this year featured a, a more of a short list of mechanically unique cards being introduced via secret layer. Fortunately, none of those have been an issue. So that's February. Then we've got two months until April when Streets of New Capenna comes out. Much less impactful for Vintage, though there are a couple of noteworthy exceptions. Kind of a weak set. Yeah, yeah. Two more months go by and brings us into early summer. In June, we have Battle for Baldur's Gate, a.k.a. Uh, Commander's, Commander, Legend. Commander Legends 2, yeah. Though that, that moniker, a lot of people argue, don't like. But also kind of an understated set for Vintage. Baldur's Gate when it was first introduced was a little bit of a slow burn for the format. But as you'll see in our discussion, that has changed. <laughs> then three months go by July and August. 
And I think part of the reason for that is there was a set delay involved. I think Infinity was meant to slot into that late summer spot and was delayed. But uh, that we're not here to talk about that, really. September was the next major set release, and that was Dominaria the United. Big, the biggest set of the year, right? Uh, well, that depends on your perspective. Um, <laughs> it, I, it had a, a huge lead-up, and lore-wise, it is absolutely the biggest set of the year. Well, depending on how you relate that to the Brothers War. But um, there was a big lead-up to Dominaria United. It was... a it had very little impact on vintage. Right. There's, there's, there is one exception, but yes, a big one. Yeah. Uh, well, there is the other card that Wizard said made a big splash. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> nice, the, nice. Yeah. October is um, had some set releases, but almost completely unapplicable to vintage. That is the Warhammer 40k Commander decks, which did introduce a number of new cards, and Infinity, which also introduced a number of new cards, but none of that really made a splash in vintage. Next month, November, the Brothers War. War. Yeah. Now, that's a cool set that we haven't had too much time to marinate on yet. In terms of set size, which of these is the largest? Oh, let's see. So, in terms of... Gosh. So, (laughs) that's a funny question. In terms of mechanically unique cards, the answer is Infinity. But a large portion of those are not legal in Vintage. Yes. And so, I don't know if it's Baldur's Gate or Infinity, which introduced some more. Let me clarify. I mean, introduction of new cards into the vintage card pool. Not playables, but which just have the (laughs) largest number of playables. New cards, rather. It's probably Infinity, but I I don't know what the acorn portion of Infinity is, because Infinity was like 600 new cards. But part of that is variations on stuff. Part of that is the attractions. You know, there's a whole side deck of attractions, which are technically vintage legal, but, you know, come on. Yeah, I... Let me be clear. Most yeah. unset cards are not vintage legal. So, I, I don't. I don't know what the portion is, but yes, it's much mechanically. It's much less than six hundred. The largest regular release of the year was Baldur's Gate at three hundred forty-four cards. This year, uh, okay, in terms wow. of new cards introduced into Magic, was colossally large. Yeah. But yes, uh, that's it's, just the acceleration of products overall. Well, we are conditioned to think of the fall set as the big anchor set, right? Because I realize mm-hmm. they've strayed away from that for a number of years now, but you're telling me that the June set was the set that had the largest number of new vintage playable. Sorry, vintage uh, legal introductions. That's really that's yeah, yeah that's big. Okay, it, it is big, yeah. and and partly it's because vintage is being impacted by and driven by things that affect commander. You know that they're developing cards strongly for Commander, both in attention and in quantity. And like it or not, Vintage is, you know, the Commander and Vintage share uh, a card pool significantly. Uh, in, you know, in practice, that they don't, but functionally and literally, literally they do. And that's part of the reason. That's part of the reason why Vintage is seeing such a, a high quantity of new cards. So then that brings us to the end of the year, and it goes out with kind of a whimper from a vintage standpoint, because the last set of the year is Jumpstart, which is basically need not apply. There's a very small amount of mechanically new cards, and they're completely targeted at Commander. Uh, <clears throat> but I would argue that's a good thing, <laughs> because we don't want the converse, which is the way the first Jumpstart set was, where they were really hard to get, and there were a couple of eternal legal cards like Allosaurus Shepard, and or like the original commander sets which we've talked about ad nauseum and the flusterstorm mistake you know so we don't want it's a good thing that jumpstart was uh not important the only other thing that i want to point out on this annual list is the 
the, you know, the one other big event for the year that's not set released based. And that's the fact that we had eternal weekend, three of them. In fact, two in person, two in paper and, and, and well, three virtually also really, but, uh, the return of North American paper, uh, eternal weekend is a great thing. It's just a great thing. And you and I had a great time doing commentary for the vintage top eight. It's fun. Yeah. So that's the whole year, Steve, you know, I mean, we're going to get to which cards and decks were impacted by those set releases, but honestly, it's a quiet year. Well, in one sense it is, in another sense it's not. So now that you've done the set reviews, or the sets, let's talk about the cards from those mm-hmm. sets, because there's a, there are a lot of cards to talk about, right? So let's start back at the top. Yeah. You're not, you're not wrong with, about that. With- there were there were a significant portion of vintage playables this year and cards that have become standouts in their various archetypes and decks. And we can, we can take the approach of going uh, chronologically if you want, or we can take the approach of, yeah. Okay. So starting early in the year with Kamigawa, Kamigawa was a great set across multiple formats and it it introduced uh, a set of cards, a cycle of cards of which one is a particular standout. (laughs) And those are the channel lands. And I'm talking about Buseju, who in The new Buseju. <laughs> the new Buseju, yeah. The old Buseju is a cool card and, and it has a, a place in my heart. But Buseju, who endures the green channel land, which doubles as a, a disenchant strongly and occasionally a vindicate, is just an exceptional role player in vintage. We knew it when we reviewed it. We knew it was going to immediately become a staple in multiple decks. And that has borne out. It is absolutely a staple. And because of that, when it comes to our numbers, which we'll get to in a little bit for our moxies, Boseju uh, um, is a, a powerful force in a quantitative fashion. We have to uh, prorate <laughs> <laughs> the appearances based upon uh, months of availability. So absolutely, we do. Yeah. It's a good. It's a good metric. Um, we'll get to that and and uh, how challenging but, that is for Boseju in particular. But, but it's anything- challenging due to the ubiquity. Uh, anything else out from Neon Dynasty patchwork automation? Yes. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, it, it, that's the thing is that Boseju was not the only kind of immediate <laughs> staple from that set, which is really cool. <laughs> patchwork automaton immediately automaton. Uh, made its mark on Workshop aggro decks and became a staple. It had an interesting trajectory over the course of the year because Workshops was not always really effective throughout the year. No, <laughs> but but Patchwork automaton is uh, is here to stay. Absolutely. Other, it's, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was. We'll talk about the metagame dynamics, but workshops had kind of fallen off at the beginning of the year, and then came creeping I think, back. Yeah, I think, and the patchwork automaton, I think, it was was a shot in the arm for workshops. Okay. Anything else from Neon Dynasty? That yeah, a couple of less staple items uh, of note is the the disenchant march of otherworldly light, which was uh, far from a staple, but definitely has seen play has seen some role plays and you'll see it even to this day especially in Jeskai, a couple of other decks as well there was a, a bit of a flash in the pan of Cyberdrive awakener that's the that's the big blue creature that, that turns your artifacts into four fours and so a lot of people were experimenting with that that had a couple of top finishes far from a staple at this point so kamigawa kind of um, sp- spreads the spectrum of lo- immediate and long-term lasting staple in the form of Boseju and a little bit in Patchwork Automaton, and then a couple of role players as well. Good set, Kamigawa. That brings us to April, Streets of New Capenna. Streets is a little bit more fallow 
than Kamigawa was. But there is at least one strong standout in Ledger Shredder. Now, there's there's another two, but I want to talk about Ledger Shredder because you and I were very excited about Ledger Shredder and the, the way that it interacted with established archetypes. And, you know, we, we started our conversation talking about uh, Xerox kind of play or a Delver style play. And that card is decent at that role, better maybe in other formats. But the way that Ledger Shredder has really kind of um, separated itself is the way it interacts with Underworld Breach and the kind of role player it can be in those decks as well, which I find interesting. Ledger Shredder has had a strong performance this year, numerically speaking, though it is by no means a um, an archetype-defining card any longer. There is another card, though, that really, I think, has distinguished itself, and that is Unlicensed Hearse. This is one that I think you and I were not terribly excited about when we started our set review right at the beginning of the conversation. But the more we thought about it, the more we kind of came around to the fact that the card was a as a decent role player. But then I think we were a little surprised when it came to report card time because the hearse really established itself as a staple, not in high quantities, but in consistent appearance. Hmm. Yeah. So... That's a couple of cards, the Hearse and the Ledger Shredder, that I think you're going to continue to see in Vintage for a long time. Not to the degree of maybe a Patchwork Automaton or a Baseju, but consistent, consistent role-playing performance. All right, that brings us up to Battle for Baldur's Gate. Now, this is an interesting one. <laughs> this is an interesting one. We have... Obviously, a very strong and contemporary impact from Baldur's Gate in the White Initiative creatures. White Plume Adventurer and Seasoned Dungeoneer, which almost always appear together. Almost always. And obviously, it, it's headline news right now because they are currently the, the, the new thing in Vintage. They won North American Vintage Champs in the hands of Raj James. And they've been running rampant in Magic Online challenges of late the most recent challenges at the time of this recording had four in the top eight yes <laughs> including first and second place yes <laughs> um not every challenge looks like that but there's still a dominant force right now and the metagame is actively reacting to them as we speak and that's going to influence our moxies but the interesting thing is that was not the immediate effect of Baldur's gate no Baldur's gate had much more immediate impact um from a card that was kind of an unlikely pair of characters, and that is Minsk and Boo, Boo. Timeless Heroes. Yeah. <laughs> and part of the reason for the slow burn on Minsk and Boo is because of their delayed release on Magic Online. Ah. Which, um, and and the, the same goes for the initiative cards, too. Yes. Uh, unfortunately... This is so screwy. These, these I know, damn weird sets. <laughs> like it or not, the... Magic Online is not getting 100% of cards at set release these days. Mostly it's down to the commander cards, which is what we're experiencing here. And it's maximally confusing because, well, we don't need to get into the ways in which commander cards are dispersed across different booster types and how they're considered to be in a core set or in, in, in a standard set versus not. It's, it's confusing. Suffice it to say, not every card, and sadly, not every card that's playable in Eternal formats is released right away on Magic Online. And so when they do, they get extra attention because they're, they're uh, you know, delayed impact. And both these initiative creatures and Minskin Boo had that effect. Minskin Boo has actually had a surprisingly 
robust performance and the the reasons are fun to discuss you know this is not a metagame show per se but the the reasons are that minskin boo provides a, a nice role player a nice top end source of both damage and and removal and card advantage which you know planeswalkers do but in a non-pyroblastable form and in a form that can dodge lightning bolt as needed and in a form that closes games faster than you might think <laughs> if you've never faced a minsk uh undisrupted it's actually a, a pretty big beating so minsk and boo and the white initiative creatures were the standouts from Baldur's gate and in a delayed fashion remember that was that set was ostensibly released in june but those cards didn't show i don't know what the exact dates are for those cards but they didn't show up until later in the year then we've got a, a long stretch until september from june to september when Dominaria United comes out. And as you said, big headliner for the year. For Vintage, it really only has one card. I'd have to go back to our set review to see what other things we predicted, you know, greater than zero play for. But that one card did make a big splash, and that was Shieldred, the Apocalypse. Yes. For for those who might not remember, Shieldred is the, the four mana, four five, that is also an Underworld Dreams. Yeah, and, it kind of more. reverse tendrils. Yeah, and the the big thing that happened right when Shouldered came out was there was a, a immediate integration into the Grixis Tinker slash Draw yes. Seven decks, where Shouldered can be you know a near win, instant win with a Draw Seven, but is also just generally a difficult threat to disrupt. Yeah, at a different angle of attack, it's right. sort of reminds you of like Urza Planeswalker, the original Urza sign of uh, in the old PO decks. Yes. Yes, yeah. very much so. Very much in that vein. Fights orthogonal to the the ways that the deck is actually normally trying to win and makes your opponent spread themselves thin in terms of fighting different types of threats. It also overlaps strongly, and it turns out that this is the more numerically st- strong presence. Um, it overlaps strongly with the role that Opposition Agent played in Doomsday Sideboards and, and has almost usurped. Not quite, not quite, but has become a staple in doomsday sideboards because shieldred is so good when your deck is filled with four dark rituals (laughs) that she can just uh, take over games on her own um if the the card doomsday is not is not either applicable or you know has otherwise been disrupted or not present so anyway that's why shieldred and uh, made such a, a splash in vintage an immediate deck building challenge in the Grixis draw seven sense and a, a slower burn in terms of role player out of the sideboard for doomsday, which continues to be uh, a staple of the format doomsday. And we saw that manifest in the North American vintage top eight where Kietno uh, was present with the Grixis deck with shielded. I think there, there was doomsday in that top eight too, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah. So there were two decks featuring shielded in that top eight. I want to, you're talking about verify that. the vintage, which one? The one the, we the, covered? Yeah. Yeah, remember with the Doomsday deck almost beat, and we were astonished how it got to the top four? That's right. So after Dominaria United, we get to October. That was Warhammer and, and Unfinity. Nothing nothing terribly noteworthy in terms of quantity there. Though there were a, a, a lot, a high quantity of mechanically unique cards introduced in that month. Um, they have yet to really make a splash in vintage. November brings us the Brothers' War. The Brothers' War is still simmering. I would argue it definitely features uh, the might stone and the weak stone, which is a card I really enjoy. And that has made a handful of appearances already. And I, I would argue 
it is probably reaching staple status in a very niche archetype, that being the Jewel Shops decks. Uh, I think there's still some more room for exploration there. But, you know, it's not a staple in terms of a four of, but I think it's a really strong role player in that deck that will be consistently present. Uh, not enough time has really elapsed for that to really cement itself yet. And then that brings us to the very end of the year in Jumpstart. As I said, uh, no real impact there. Um, the, the story that really came to the surface at Eternal Weekend was, of course, the emergence of Mono White, uh, the initiative deck, taking first place there, but also just being one of the most commonly played decks in the tournament. And uh, as he is wont to do, Justin Gennari, you know, tweeted out the details from the specifically from the vintage paper Eternal Weekend uh, event where the most played decks included mono white and the highest win rate included mono white as well, <laughs> which is, you know, a, a killer combination and what showed the deck to perform so well and be the really the story of that tournament much less winning it, of course. So that brings us to our discussion of how things have shifted and, and how the year has ended in terms of cards, sets, and decks. Steve, we've got some some numbers to go with specific cards. We've got some numbers to go with specific decks. Do you have a preference for what we tackle first? I think it would be good if we could just go month by month and talk about how the metagame all right, so let's let's in the interest of time, let's take a quarterly perspective, which we like to do. So Q one, that's right, Q one, and just for reference, we're we're using the the vintage communities uh, data that Justin and and the 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 Discord and the streamers community all contribute to. So once again, we want to throw a shout out to and a recognition for all the hard work that the community does in capturing and assembling and then summarizing this data. We continue to benefit. Uh, on this show, but as a community collective week, we continue to benefit from this effort, and it's fantastic. We've got many thousands of seven thousand player deck combinations at play here for this for this uh, in this data set. So it's just a, it's a fantastic wealth of information. So we're looking at January through March here, Q1 of 2022, and the most represented decks in this time period are number one, Blue Tinker. That's 1,400. Number two, Bazaars at 1,300. And just shy of that in third place is Combo at 12, 1,291, effectively 1,300 as well. So those are the three dominant archetypes. There's a big fall off after that to less than 1,000 for shops. So not a strong shops showing in terms of representation. How about win rates, though? So win rates by archetype in that time period. Number one, also Blue Tinker. 52%, not an overwhelmingly dominant for a whole, you know, archetype category, but we'll get to some specific decks that have slightly standout numbers there. Second place, combo, 51.5%. So that's, that's, that's actually, numerically speaking and statistically speaking, that's actually a pretty big step down. Yeah. From over 52 down to 51.5, that's a pretty big step down. And it's an even further step down to third place, which, which is where bizarres are, 50.5, 50.7. So here we see in Q1... Tinker is not only the most dominant in terms of uh, representation, but also in overall win percentage. Yeah, the beginning of the year was really defined by the, really the predominance of this Tinker deck, the Tinker mm -hmm. strategy. You, you mm -hmm. agree with that? Absolutely. And it became the kind of the definition of the year in terms of what you had to expect and be prepared for in the format, which is you had to be able to to hang with Tinker 
and that's why so many people just chose to play it. It's um, it has a lot of attractive elements in terms of old school lowercase o old school vintage players. Right, it's an explosive deck. It uses a lot of the fun aspects of vintage. You get to have vintagey turns, and um, it was just also strong. In terms of more granular deck performance, though, the top two performing decks in terms of win percentage, which were very similar, 54.5 in both cases, is Paradoxical Outcome and Luris DRS decks. Now that's interesting because Luris DRS, from a representation standpoint, was way down the list. Only 800 appearances. Remember, the the Tinker decks were at 1,400, so almost half, (laughs) right? But still really strong, really strong uh, metagame match win percentage for DRS there. Falling that in third place, Breach, 53.5. So note that Combo was really close, just shy of second place. I mean, effectively a tie for second place, Combo was. And Breach and Doomsday are the, the, the most numeric representations of those. Breach was slightly more common at just over half of them. And the match win percentage, 53.5% is a really strong match win percentage for Breach. What was Doomsday's? Well, it was just shy of that, 52.7. So strong individual performances from the top two combo decks, but still PO at 54.5 distinguished itself in Q1. Where was Tinker? Well, that depends on how you, you know, which uh, decks fall into the, the Tinker subgroup. Let's look at that here. So when you look at the, the, the strongest contributors to the overall Tinker archetype, POs, uh, as we already said, but Grixis Saga and Esper Saga weren't doing so well in Q1 in terms of match win percentage. Esper, 52.2. That's decent. Decent, but, you know, far from first place. Grixis only at 50.97, so basically 51%. So POs really propping up the overall Tinker number here in Q1 which I think is noteworthy, and I think that shifts over the course of the quarters. Okay, we have slightly fewer results in Q2, 5,500 decks, a little bit of a diminishment in terms of uh, format participation there. The But the, the order of the top three, they're still the top three, the order shifts, and notably. So now, the most commonly played decks are combo decks. Breach and Doomsday, taking over. Second place, Bazaars. Oh, sorry, and that's at 1,100 combo decks. Second place by only a little bit, 1,021 Bazaar decks. And third place by, again, only a little bit, 986 Tinker decks. So what happens here? Uh, combo decks sort themselves to the top. Breach and Doomsday are second and third in terms of overall numeric play, uh, where aggro Bazaars are number one. How about match win percentage then? Overall at the archetype level, very, very even. The top performing archetype is combo, but only at 51.5%. And what's second place? Also 51.5% is Tinker. What's Tight. Very, yeah, some very kind of regression to the mean sort of performance here where no one's really dominating. The top three decks are all within about 100 players, total player count, or you know deck count. And the overall match win percentage is all within about a percent, 1.3% between first and third place. Lots of regression to the mean here. Does this have to do, I mean, it obviously has to do to some extent with the overall representation of the field and the diversity of players who are wielding these these decks. But 
I mean, so in the essence, what you're seeing is that Q1, we see a surge in Tinker, and then we see a kind of decline, a, a kind of a, a regression to the mean, as you put it, right? Yeah. I mean, it, keep in mind, it's, you know, the numbers are, are comparatively slight, right? Tinker is at 51.5% match win percentage, and it's only about 100 decks shy of the most dominant in this time period. I think that there was a lot of conversation in the early half of the year about how Tinker was, it was so ubiquitous in the format and also maybe a little less fun to play against, right? These Tinker yeah. games can be fairly draw dependent. Yeah. And I think there was some uh, community um, unhappiness with the state of the metagame or at least the staleness of it. And that is also borne out, you can see in the just the overall diminishment of the numbers too. So let's see how that parlays then into Q3. It's also worth noting, if you go back to our set releases, remember that the, the beginning of the year included Kamigawa. Kamigawa, which of note included Boseju, so that was propping up some excitement in the uh, in the bizarre space in particular. Kamigawa also included Patchwork Automaton, but that didn't manage to bolster the shops numbers enough to bring shops into the top three performers. It became a staple, but shops didn't really begin to take off in accordance with having an exciting new card. As we look into Q3, the, the, the relative positioning continues to look almost exactly like it does in Q2. Combo is in first place, the most numerous. Bazaars and Blue Tinker just shy and tied basically equivalent numbers for, uh, for second place. The top performing decks, though, we see a little bit of a surge in terms of metagame win rates for Tinker. 50, uh, it ups itself to 53%. And Combo stays almost exactly equivalent to its Q2 performance in terms of metagame uh, win rates, 51.5. But there's a surge in a new category in terms of performance, and that's Blue Control, 51.7. It actually moves into second place in terms of win rate, and that's represented in a strange way by, where is it? Jeskai, 53.76%, so almost 54% win rate for Jeskai, but that's not even in the top four of win rates from a deck standpoint. This is a really weird point throughout the year where some individual decks start to have ridiculous standout performances. It, the, from an individual deck standpoint, Breach steps in at 56 and two thirds, almost 57%. Wow. What Very a ridiculous high. number. Yeah. Yeah. What a ridiculous number. That's propping up these combo numbers. But look at this Esper Saga, 56.2. Huh. 56.2 <laughs> for the second place deck. Yeah. There's some really weird stuff going it's, on it's here. A, in it's Q3. A, I mean, we've seen that before, though. We've seen a kind of duopoly format where yeah. two decks sort of throttle the format. It doesn't. It's not always a, a monopoly format, right? In fact, <laughs> it's often duopoly. So put it in narrative terms. Take it out of the the figures. What's the story? Well, the story here is that individual players and choices and uh, you know sideboarding components have led to Saga still being incredibly popular. But the combo decks have shown that they can prey on the Saga decks a little bit. So if you look at the matchup graphs for the, the third quarter and you look at um, you look at combo, you look at Breach in particular, the, the dominant combo deck, and you look at its matchup percentage against Blue Tinker, in particular PO, yeah, the matchup percentage for 
breach versus PO is <laughs> wow. The 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 error bars are enormous. It's the the median is forty percent, but the error bars go from twelve to seventy eight. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's all over the place. The the breach decks just had a harder time with. I guess they had a harder time with PO in Q3, but how did they do against other Saga decks? Against Esper Saga, 33%. Wow. But the error bars go from 70 to 81. This is really weird. It's really weird. I don't I don't even know how to, to account for this. A deck like Breach having a 50, almost a 57% win rate, but it's having poor performance against Esper Saga, poor performance against PO, where is it doing well? Well, it's doing really well against the other decks, ironically. It's doing really well against Dredge. Doing really well against what's the most common? Ah, here it is, Doomsday. Doomsday and Aggro Shops are the places where um, Breach is really uh, standing out at 56 and 57% respectively. That makes sense. In terms of the win I mean, rate. Brain Freeze is a nightmare for, <laughs> for Doomsday. For Doomsday? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so Breach is really making hay by being by preying on the other combo decks, yeah. even if it's individual tinker. You know, overall against blue tinker, it's, it's, at, it's at sub sub fifty yeah. percent. Yeah, forty seven percent. It's treading water in that matchup, and then thriving in the other ones, and therefore yeah. maintaining its sort of metagame position, almost like an ecological perch <laughs> environment. <laughs> Where Doomsday, yeah, Doomsday, which is again a, a, just a really popular over the course of the last year combo deck, Strange, is sitting overall at sixty-one percent against Tinker. So Doomsday is actually preying on the Tinker deck much more than Breaches, yeah. but Breach is preying on the Doomsday decks. <laughs> yep, there you go. There's the dynamic. That's the right. Dynamic. And keep keep in mind, this is all against the backdrop of now Streets of New Capenna. Right. This came is, out this in is April pre Q four. <laughs> yeah, so. that's right. <laughs> This well, is and, all and, about the change. And, and note that Streets came out, and we and we as we talked about already, that included Ledger Shredder, it included Unlicensed Hearse, but these are cards that were not defining and you know changing the positions of archetypes. Yes, Ledger Shredder is good in the breach decks, and it became it became commonplace, but not f- from a you know a highly numeric standpoint, did Ledger Shredder. <laughs> Alright, so then that brings us into Q4. And what happens in Q4? Lots of jockeying for position throughout the year. Lots of small advantages across and between archetypes. You're burying the lead, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so what is so we're, we're in Q4. What's the most p- commonly played deck? It is still combo. Yeah. But what's the best performing archetype? Still combo, but only at fifty one point eight percent. The end. Indi- the best individual performing deck yes. in all of Q4. 54 and 0.7 percent for doomsday and 54 even for paradoxical outcome how is white initiative not in the top three well i think the reason is the quantity is still just so too low the the overall quantity of mono white it does jump into second place behind breach but the the deck is still so fresh that the uh, the matchup win percentage for that deck individually is still only 51.3%. If you look at how mono white was doing against the the rest of the format, okay, the, the win percentage for mono white, the most um, common matchup for mono white in this data is itself. It's the mirror, 
which is obviously right at 50% uh, tautologically. The next most common is combo, which makes sense. It's the next most represented archetype. But the overall matchup there is still 50%. Basically, this mono white deck, very popular, is not preying on the dominant combo decks. It's matchup against Doomsday, 56%. Pretty good. It's matchup against Breach, though, 29%. 29%. This... So this deck is is kind of feast and famine against its most common opponents, that right? Explains its most a common lot. yeah, opponent is itself where you're naturally 50-50, but it's just strongly divided against the the, the dominant combo decks. It, it's really interesting how this manifests in in the uh, North American uh, Eternal Weekend because as we said from based on the the, the analysis that Justin re, uh, brought out Mono White was one of the most played decks and one of the best win rates, but subtly in there, Breach and Doomsday were also heavily played, and Breach had one of the best win rates. So Breach was, I think, a, a, an untold story for us in our in the commentary booth was how Breach was very heavily played at that tournament and did very good and just missed top eight. There wow. were no Breach decks in the top eight. We didn't see Breach on camera no. at all. So. We didn't. We wow. didn't, but if you look at say the top <laughs> the top twenty decks, yeah, there's there's breach in uh, I guess that's twelfth place at X and two. There's wow. two more breaches at X and two. So breach had a good tournament, but well, everyone who played it capped out at two losses and didn't make top eight. Wow, this is an interest. This is going to be an interesting thing to watch going forward. So the mono white deck was heavily played, and part of that I think too is because like it or not, it, it counts as a budget deck, right? It doesn't have some of the other expensive staples. Well, I mean, it's it's still a full Moxon deck, but it doesn't have. It's not a workshop deck. It's not a bizarre deck. It's not a. It's not a blue power deck, right? So it's not a affordable deck, but it is cheaper than all the other archetypes. <laughs> I would argue. It might have something to say with Doomsday, though. I guess I'd have to look at that since Doomsday doesn't run full Moxon. But anyway, be that as it may, Breach is also an attractive deck in that. Aggro decks tend to be slightly overrepresented at champs, right? There's lots of players that either come over from Legacy or uh, are just, you know, interested in playing a deck that is a little more intuitive to them from a vintage standpoint. And, and Mono White Initiative is kind of like that. But the the Q4 results and the way that that Mono White is positioned is just fascinating, just fascinating. It has great matchups against. Uh, let's see, what does it have great matchups against? Doomsday, we already said. Um, other combo decks, it also had 57% against other blue control decks and other tinker decks. Some of the other categories that the initiative deck just dominated. But the one thing that it, it's, its core weakness was breach. It's all the way down at the left-hand side of that, this uh, matchup graph for mono white. Which if you know this graph, you know that it goes from low to high. So all the way down at the left, it had its worst matchup against one of the strongest decks in the field. And still managed to put multiple copies in the top eight and win the tournament. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. It is fascinating. We this is I think this is emblematic of what we're observing that we like about the metagame. And that is so much of what's changing is organic. Okay, the introduction of the initiative cards into Magic Online was not organic, so that's an exception. <laughs> but so much of what's going on is individual archetypes jockeying for position, right? This mono white deck has taken the format by storm, but part of that is just numeric, right? Just lots of excitement around it. Part of it is a little bit of uncertainty, people not familiar with how to navigate against it, which happens with new decks. 
but the fact that it has one Achilles heel already built into the format, I think is hilarious. If you look at Breach's matchup win chart for Q4, again, the, it's the inverse of the white one, of course. On yes. the far right, <laughs> it's got a 71% <laughs> oh matchup God. against that mono-white deck. That's and the hilarious. error bars aren't even that I big. I mean, that's, as, that's pretty much as close as you can get to a rock, paper, scissors, in the sense that nothing in Vintage is like 90-10. 71% yeah. is is basically <laughs> how what you top out in a game that has variance. That's right. You're totally right. And so what this tells me is that there's a lot that still needs to shake out with the vintage metagame. And we're right in the thick of it right now. As I mentioned earlier, the last challenge had four mono white decks in the top eight. I didn't I don't remember how many breach decks it had. But if the format's gonna look like that, well then bring your breach deck in and and shore up your matchups against other key things like Doomsday. And, um, and I don't know, there's just a lot of dynamicism right now. And it is, I would argue, mostly organic. We're going to talk about our cards of the year, of course, but this really informs a really, really, really interesting perspective on how you and I evaluate our Moxie Award for Deck of the Year. Yes. We had this trouble yes. last year talking about consistency versus breakout, right? If you look at the whole year, we've got, we, we, we should transition into our moxie awards for the deck of the year i think by looking at the full year performance because well it's just the right thing to do and we've had some consistent decks over the course of the year taking the full year into consideration blue tinker again the, the most played deck over the year bazaars and combos tied for second not much far behind <clears throat> in terms of individual decks though and overall match win percentage the deck of the year that performed the best is paradoxical outcome astonishing now yeah. that's by only the metric of win percentage. That's only the metric. Yeah, that's only win percentage. Po was ostensibly the fifth most played deck of the year. That that order goes: bazaars, aggro bazaars, I should say, breach, then aggro shops, then doomsday, and then Po. And after Po goes Grixis Saga and Bug. So, aggro bazaar is far and away the most common and and wide widely played individual deck of the year but their match win percentage is only 51.9 just shy of 52 in terms of match win percentage they're down in the call it fourth place no fifth place you know very numerically popular but not a very dominant performance breach by comparison the second most played deck had a match win percentage overall for the year of 53.5 not the highest, but still a very strong number. 53.5 for a whole year is an incredible match win that percentage is very strong. in this format. I yeah. remember reading some articles by, um, oh, uh, what's his name? The, uh, the guy who's now basically running the DCI. And in one of his articles, I think he was talking about other formats, he said 52% is sort of suggestive of an unreasonably high win percentage. So... Are you talking about Ian Duke? Ian Duke, thank you. Yes. Yeah. So, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, so... And, I and guess, surprising, not just impressive, surprising. I, we should parlay that then, Steve, into our conversation about how we're going to award a moxie well, for a deck this year. Let me just remind everyone, in the previous years, we've looked at like four or five different metrics. Um, and, and I have typically done a lot of the, the data gathering and collecting it's gotten so sophisticated with the streamer community that I decided it's just unnecessary for me to continue doing that. <laughs> so what we've typically looked at is we've looked at four different metrics. We've looked at win percentage. We've looked at top eight penetration. 
we've looked at uh, tournament victories, and we've looked at we've also looked within that at, at major tournament victories. Um, and then we've looked at we've we've looked at all of those at different layers. So we've looked on a monthly basis who won the most months, and then we've looked at and that's I think that has powerfully influenced us of which of these decks won the most months, not just the quarters and the halves or the overall year, I think is important because we've seen decks in the past that have a high overall annual performance, but like really poor quarters or really poor months. And that's that's weighed in, in our analysis. So we've looked at multiple data points or statistics to try and create a holistic sense. Mm-hmm. I, I always tend to weight more. Well, we, we have to be generous to decks that don't exist at the beginning of the year, number one. Right, because so mono white initiative is inherently disadvantaged in that regard. Um, number two, I tend to overweight winning major tournaments because to me, if you win, if if you you know, so if you look at a year, doesn't matter what the year is, it could be 1997 or it could be 2015 or it could be 2002. Yeah. And you look at the year and you say, okay, this deck has the highest top eight win percentage. When and top eight win percentage is typically the synthesis of metagame representation and win rate so it's win rates obviously more direct but it's the synthesis of that if you look at anything a, a year and you see i don't know gifts ungiven wins you know like the biggest the three biggest tournaments of the year which are let's say the you know the the um uh, the bazaar of moxen in april then the vintage championship and the waterbury wins the majors if you will right you use golf <laughs> right right if, if if a deck wins the majors but it's kind of average the rest of the year, just kind of like treading water. I'll still call it the deck of the year, you know. And even if technically its win percentage is let's say forty nine point eight percent for the year, but it spikes the largest events, I'm willing to to call it the deck of the year. So I don't have in mind our awards for previous years exactly what we've given out. I think last year was really difficult, if I recall. We kind of struggled it because. Was. It was, yeah. Because we had decks performing well differently depending on how you sliced it up. And I think you've made a really clear case based on win percentage. But that, to me, that's not the only thing that matters. So I think for me, I would wait winning major tournaments. But we don't really have... It, for, for major tournaments in this era, which is almost all online, we're looking at the three Eternal Weekend events. And we're looking at any super PTQs. That's basically the biggest events, right? Am I missing anything? No, you're right. So I'd look at those and see what what dominated those. And then I would probably also look at overall top eight penetration and win percentage. Um, Yeah, I think that's probably what I would look at. Probably win percentage is a little bit better than top top eight penetration. But I worry that you're telling us something really counterintuitive. You know, the PO, I mean, maybe, maybe there was just a, I mean, what if PO was like doing really well in win percentage, but just not winning tournaments and not making top eights and top fours very much? Does that mean it's really, you know what I mean, the best deck? I, I just, I'm not going to give yeah. a moxie to PO and I'm not going to give a moxie to Breach. I think it's impossible <laughs> to give it to those decks if they haven't really done well on the largest stages. And you said that, you said that Breach did well. Can you really say it did well if it didn't make top eight? I mean, I, I hear you. He said it had a good tournament, but. That's not the metric. It's like, you know what it's like saying? It's like, I don't know, I'll use a sports metaphor. If if a football team or a basketball team consistently makes, 
I don't know, like the NFC championship, like the Packers. You know, the Packers is the number one seed like the last couple of years, but it doesn't really make it, you know, very far in the playoffs. Did they have a good year? I would say no, because yes, winning means win percentage technically, but what really matters is championships. Championships matters more than winning. Now, from a utilitarian perspective, maybe the Packer fan base, and forgive the, for those of you who hate sports, forgive this analogy, maybe the Packers (laughs) fan base is happier (laughs) with just the serial week-to-week winning, and they have just a general higher level of utils (laughs) as a result. (laughs) But I have to think that the annual disappointment of getting of of losing with such high expectations going into the playoffs is actually more devastating than the uh success in the regular season. So, I guess to put it differently, it's like saying success in the regular season versus success in the playoff tournament. To me, you have to give because what championships is what matters the most. It's not the only thing that matters, but to me it matters the most. I have to give more weight to success in the playoffs than in the regular season. So that's how mm-hmm. I think about what gets the moxies. Well, and as you said, um, we have to, we strongly have to uh, uh, calibrate for Mono White in particular for its newness in the format, right? Mono White Sorry. has basically only had two months to play in Vintage. So if you look at the, the full year's data, I think I'm doing this right, so... What I've done here is I've summarized the first place finishes of all the sub archetypes throughout the whole year. And the number one performer is Breach with 22. Second is Doomsday with 21. But that's a full year. Right. Mono White has seven. That's in to my two point, months. right? That's, <laughs> yes. 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 So if you count, cal- and there's no other, I don't think there's any other deck that, so what, what are, the, what are the, the, in order? So Breach. At twenty-two, Doomsday at twenty-one. Those are those are strong performances. What's next? Agro Bazaars at fourteen. Oh. Pref- fairly big drop off there. What's next? Agro Shops has eleven. Bug has eleven. Grixis J- Saga has ten. Jeskai has ten. But all of go. those decks, all of those other double-digit decks. What's the next one? Oh, Prison Shops has eleven. All of those double-digit decks are for tw- we're talking twelve months of results. Right. Right. So you have those to are pro-rate. archetypes that have been here for the whole year. You have to prorate. Yeah, so the top performing deck breach is putting about what is that one and a half per month? That's very, very good. one and a half wins. I mean, so that's, Wait, that's a, it's, go ahead. It's a strong performance, yeah. but look at Mono White putting seven up it's in two months. Way better. That's three yeah. and a half. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that means, and you have a, basically eight challenges a month too. So yeah. as a percentage, that I mean, look it if if the breach deck had emerged, sorry, if the initiative deck. Had emer- I mean, it emerged fairly late in the year as a serious competitor. It had more time mm-hmm. to develop, but it didn't. So mm-hmm. it, it's hard to say why. Was it because it was just a late collective realization? I mean, I, well, I remember it, we were recording... We're dealing with the late release of the initiative cards into Magic no, Online. I, I get that. Dealing. But I remember yeah. in a, in our some of our most recent recordings, I had raised the point. I said, I'm seeing these white decks in these top eights, Kevin. Yeah. Um, it's hard. You know, if I was doing, in my history of vintage, if I'm looking at, I don't know, 2003, and, you know, a deck dominates November and December, but is basically non-existent for the rest of the year, can you say it's the best deck of the year? It's a quandary. It's a hard question. 
If November and December has a disproportionate clusters of the most important events, and the card, let's say, came out, the cards that fuel it came out in October, I think you have an easier case. So I, I'm willing to give something the moxie for the year in strange circumstances like that. You know, I think you can. It's just, it's not straightforward. <laughs> it's not an easy <laughs> thing to do, to do, right? I think that's well, what you're saying. Uh, I completely agree. Um, and one other thing that we've talked about, and this is a, a kind of a, well, not kind of, it's really a subjective concept that we've touched on year over year. And that is when you look back at the year of 2022 and you need to complete the phrase, oh, that was the year of X. Yes. Right? Yes. What What are you going to say about this year? Are you going to say, yes. oh, that was the year where Breach did really well all year? No. Yes. No, you're going to you say, know. oh, that was the year that Mono White won champs. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. That's. I think that's very. That's very important. There's a narrative yeah. element. Let me give you another example. Two thousand. Two thousand. In the year two thousand, Necropotence and Trix decks just dominated Type One, but they were banned. Basically, Necropotence and Demonic Consultation were restricted in early October. So, it, yeah. it, if you want to say it had it basically a zero <laughs> zero metagame representation in in uh, October, November, and December. Yeah. Uh, so. How I mean, sort of the inverse. Like, what if you know it's still the deck of the year? Yeah. It, even if it has a yeah. zero win percentage, it's not technically true. In the latter three <laughs> months, it's still the deck of the year. I, I think it, it. You don't have to dominate. It, it's a factor. Dominating over the course of the year is a factor, but it can be overwhelmed or out outweighed by other factors and considerations. In my and opinion, also, the completion yeah. of that phrase, "This is the year of." Yeah. is very weighty. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's another there's another factor too. In addition to what you just said and in addition to the numbers, anecdotally, you said narrative a second ago. And I think narrative's a, a, just an incredibly valuable way to to condense this because you look at all these other archetypes, Breach Breach was, you know, a new deck a couple of years ago. Right. Doomsday hasn't been a new I deck for a long time. We might have given Breach the deck of the year in did. 20 2020 if i'm not mistaken yeah i think that we did i think you're yeah. right there there's just not another archetype you know you know more detailed archetype in the top 10 archetypes that is new this year we've talked about new yeah. additions to other decks we in breached got a new tool in in uh ledger shredder uh you know shops got a new tool in patchwork automaton po got a new tool in uh the might stone and the weak stone Right, but they didn't carve a new deck. Now, mono white. Okay, mono white's not a new deck in the vintage sense, right? We've had mono white decks before, but at the start of this year, there was no uh, mono white Eldrazi deck to speak right. of, right? <laughs> a, a, a near zero in the format, and so you can attribute the success Entirely. of this archetype, yeah, to the standout and the, the, the change. And oh, by the way, you know it's competing like Luris DRS decks have very high win percentages consistently. <laughs> But Mono White has more uh, first place finishes than does Luris. And that matters. That matters. Yeah. yeah. So I think we're coming to a resolution here. So let's start with, the, I think most of what we've just been doing has been setting up deck of the year. Let's do yeah. deck, then let's do set, then let's do card, and then we'll do storyline for our moxie. Totally agree. Totally agree. So. So um, for me... Sorry, you said deck first. Yeah. For me, the answer is clear. My vote is going toward Mono White Initiative. <laughs> I didn't w persuade you of this, did I? This was your decision. Uh, 
No, I was I was leaning this way, but I hadn't seen and discussed and reviewed all the numbers until we've reached this point. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm there as well. I think the way in which it totally dominated the Eternal, not just Eternal Weekend, but starting with Eternal Weekend, and that yeah. has continued to perform so well since and leading up to it, uh, I don't think there's a doubt in my mind. The fact that we have given Breach and PO previous years moxies is not irrelevant either. You know, that's these are standbys, right? They're not the emergent thing of the year. So, um, I, I mean, I would I, I, give me the numbers on Doomsday again. How many? What was its win percentage of the year? Um, hold on, just a sec. I'm switching back to that. I remember Doomsday had a pretty compelling case in the previous years. It was surprisingly compelling. It won, I think, Eternal yes. Weekend, one of the last two years, one of the Eternal Weekend events. Go ahead. What was it? The full year matchup win percent for Doomsday is a strong 52.6. That's, that's really high. That's so, really high. But it's not, I mean, but it, it is the, what is it? It looks like the fourth, the fourth best performing archetype for the whole year. And, but how many w- tournaments did it win out of the, you know, hundred and some challenges? It, you can tell. it had uh, 21 first place oh finishes, God. just just one shy of Breach. I mean, wow. this whole year has been a, a dogfight between Breach and Doomsday in terms of first places. Yeah. I mean, my impression, which is not statistically based, is that Doomsday actually had a better, that, that sort of Breach faded down the stretch, Tinker faded down the stretch, Doomsday held its own all the way to the end, was my impression. Yeah. I think Doomsday suffers, frankly, from being, you know, it's just weak to Thalia, just as weak to Thalia. <laughs> but the fact that it's able to compete in such a hostile, you know, whatever, I think speaks to the inherent staying power of Doomsday. I think it's it's very, very strong. And in the extremely capable pilot's hands, a very dangerous we, well, let's call it the Doomsday Devices, which we used to call it, you know, <laughs> back in the day. So yeah. my Moxie well, is also going to the White Initiative deck. Congratulations, White Initiative and Raja, you did it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Congratulations again to Raja. All right. So what's next then, Steve? I think we should do set next because it's going to yeah. be a little bit easier. And I like to do this process of elimination. So we have what? Is it eight sets? Remind me. How many sets? Uh, hold on. I don't actually have that count. So if you're talking regular releases, Kamigawa Streets, Baldur's Gate, Dominaria United, Brothers War. Five regular releases. Plus. Plus Warhammer, Infinity, and Jumpstart. And you, you could count Street Fighter there too. So a kind of a sliding scale of what you consider to be a, a set. Yes. So let's. So five five normal sets, plus, what we'd call normal, plus another, plus another four of differing okay, types. Okay, so nine. Okay, yeah. so just let's eliminate the non-contenders here, and then uh, yeah, all the smaller ones are are non-factors. Jumpstart, Warhammer, Infinity, Street Fighter; those are non-factors. Okay. So really, we are evaluating the five core sets: Kamigawa, Streets of New Capenna, Battle for Baldur's Gate, Dominaria, and Brothers War. Those five. Now, in terms, I don't have like set-specific total cards, yeah. but in terms of numeric representation. There is a number, there's a clear, clear number one. And it might surprise you, but it's because of the dramatic, dramatic staple status of Boseju who endures. Yeah. But again, so much so that I can't actually cite a number for you. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Well, that's the thing is that our our technique for evaluating appearances, as we've done in the past, so this is just a review for longtime listeners, but it's top eight or better in tournaments that are either 32 people large or. Uh, some kind of significant invite status like the um, 
uh, what's the invite ones on Magic Online called? Not the challenges, but the uh, oh, what's the step above challenge? Yeah, I know. Um, the, the, the the qualifiers. Yes, the qualifiers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So those tournaments tend not to be 32 players sometimes in the vintage yeah. uh, context, but we still count them if you've got a, a top performance there. Anyway, so the way we evaluate that in the modern era now is to go to uh, MTG Goldfish, since that's the best aggregator of individual card searches, and then to look at main deck and sideboard appearances for top eights in that, that category of tournaments. And then we count each top eight appearance as an individual count. So... <laughs> I didn't bother to count Boseju. Because <laughs> it's just so it, overwhelming. It had 851 individual results, Close. which includes that those are not top eights, but those are just discrete results that I would have had to page through 800 of them in order to look which ones those are top eights. By comparison, the next most numerous card was Patchwork Automaton. It had 195 oh. of those results. I think what, what, again, that was the earliest set in the year. We've seen this. Right, the set that comes out earlier in the year—that's right—has more opportunity for the cards to see play. That's so. that's totally right. So we need to we need to calibrate, and we will. But my point on uh, um, Baseju is simply that it is it's too numerous to count. I so by comparison, Patchwork Automaton had 195 results total. Of those, 32 were uh, top eights. The wow. 32 of 195 met our criteria so if you use that as a ratio if you if you go 32 um let me, let me use a google here if you use that as a percentage it's about 16 and a half percent if you apply 16.5 uh to 851 arguing that boseju was going to appear at about the same rate in its decks as patchwork automaton which is a you know a, an assumption and not a, not a rock solid one you still get 140 Wow. Which, plus or minus a dozen or two, maybe, it's still a ridiculous number that of is, appearances. That is extremely high, yes. Yeah. So there's just no arguing with the fact that Boseju is the runaway um, in terms of staple status of this year. And it's also worth noting that the second place in terms of staple status appearance, it arguably goes to Patchwork Automaton. Oh, my God. <laughs> um. Now there's a there's, a, there's, a, there's kind of a dogfight there between Patrick Automaton and Unlicensed Hearse from New Capenna because they had very very similar numbers. Wow. Um, and Capenna was a few months short, so Unlicensed Hearse might have might have edged out uh, Patrick Automaton. But I mention all of that because it's inarguable that Kamigawa has both the greatest quantity and also the greatest ratio so, of cards hold on, seeing, Kevin, hold on. seeing play in I think the data that you developed really goes to the card moxie. So let's let's swap this. Yeah. Let's continue talking about the cards and we'll come back to the sets. Uh, okay, okay, so, that's, that's fair. So you've laid out a pretty compelling case, maybe overwhelming <laughs> for Bezeju. You, that's you, right. You've made an interesting set of points for Patchwork Automaton. Yeah. Um, I I want to go to the other uh, nominees for this moxie. Um, right, we've got an extreme end of the other of the spectrum. Yes, go ahead. And, and well, and, and it's it's symbolic of the same discussion and methods that we used for our deck, yes. right? Because you've got this great staple that came out at the beginning of the year and just as a consistent player, multiple yeah. archetypes, multiple decks, you're going to see it day in and day out. It's going to be in every top eight for the rest of time. <laughs> every top eight that features green cards, I guess. Um, but that is in contrast to a couple of things. New 
relatively new flash in the pan. The, the, the white initiative cards are obviously at the top of that list. They have 25 appearances of White Plume Adventure in two months. That is a ridiculous number. That's 12 and a half appearances per month, which is an unprecedented rate. Say that one more right? time. Say it again. There, there were 25 top eights by White Plume Adventure in the last two months of the year. <laughs> That's crazy. Right? 12 and a half per month. That's a ridiculous rate. That's an unprecedented yeah. rate. So we've got unprecedented in the other end of the spectrum, right? Now, will that continue in perpetuity? Almost certainly not. There's no way, right? The metagame will adjust it and yeah. we'll see how it shakes out in terms of mono white initiatives place in the meta over the well, course of the next six months. But there's no denying that the similar answer to, you know, the previous question, this was the year of X. Yes. One very strong answer to that is this was the year of the, the white initiative. Yes. cards. Well, okay. So the, the, Nominees are basically uh, Bazeju, Patchwork Automaton, uh, White Plume Adventurer, Season Dungeoneer, Shieldred, and Third Path Iconoclast. Are those? The, are you? Would you put Minsk and Boo in the list, or is though is that a fair assessment of the nominees? Um, I think that is a fair assessment of the nominees. On paper, Minsk and Boo scores quite highly, but not nearly as highly as the other cards. Okay. So it, it's gonna it's gonna be a third place, no matter how you slice so it. So that's. Six cards, yeah. right? That's, yeah. it, did I count that right? It's three of the white creatures, Shieldred, and then Bazeju and Patchwork Automaton. Here's the problem. Uh, yeah. uh-huh. The fundamental problem is that the three initiative cards are three cards. It's not like, you know, it's it's not like a Necropotence or a PO. It, it, in, a, <laughs> in a way, it's a little bit like dig, in, dig through time and treasure. You know, it's... it's you <laughs> Kind of like that, yeah. yeah. It's just for the benefit of our audience. You're counting the third initiative creature as the anointed peacekeeper, right? Um, even though that oh, doesn't sorry. technically have initiative. Sorry, I said third path iconoclast. I was yeah, I was confused. Yes. Y- yeah, I-, I wanted to clarify that because I we had put it in our notes but hadn't stated it explicitly. Anointed yes. peacekeeper is uh, you know meant. it's a distant third place between the two initiative creatures, yes. but I- it's also a key part of that archetype. Yeah. So sorry, the six cards are uh real okay. So there's basically five nominees. It, it, just to repeat, it's Bazeju, yeah. <laughs> Automaton, uh, Shieldred, White Plume Adventurer, and Season Dungeoneer. Those are the real. That's that. That that's yeah. That's those are the distinguished top okay. of the list. The problem yeah. is that two of those cards have overlapping functions. Now, very much so. So, which means that they're stealing each other's thunder in a sense, <laughs> right? I mean, I it's mean, like how. Do- Go ahead. How do you count a card that always appears with another card, right? It's exactly. A, I mean, it's a little unprecedented in the no. vintage context. I mean, we did see the Treasure Cruise and Dig Deck, you know, Dig Through Time Decks running, running, you know, seven, eight of those. Well, that's true. Um, that's true. And then they restricted, you know, we restricted Treasure Cruise, and then Dig proved to be worse than Treasure Cruise. Remember, yep, the Dig yep. Decks were better. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I think it's a little bit like that, but it's also different because, I mean, well, it's actually quite similar to that because restricting treasure crews did not really hurt the deck and and so if mm. you you know if you take out one of these you still have the other so and i think the initiative decks then would rely more on the peacekeeper right to keep the initiative going right that's true it would be interesting it's an interesting uh, thought exercise <laughs> in terms of how they would evolve um and it's it's worth noting that the rules of these initiative creatures are dramatically different than the roles of treasure crews and dig i think that's inarguable of Certainly. course um and also, it's worth noting that Treasure Crew and Dig appeared across different archetypes, right? They were just s- spread across a soup of blue decks, 
Whereas these initiative th- uh, cards are very focused. Well, Kevin, so the analogy breaks down a little bit. Sure, but but look, there are some cards in Vintage that there is no analog. There's nothing that has a similar effect, right? So mm-hmm. it's like, in other words, there are cards that because they're it, over the course of the thirty years of of Type One and Vintage, the vast majority of effects have um, cousin cards to them, right? So it's like, um, yeah. Uh, Treasure Cruise has has ancestral and, and well, cantrips and well, so if you and, think about ver- and draw sevens, right? You know? So like, think about cards like Animate Dead. There's Dance of the Dead. There's Necromancy. There's Reanimate. Yeah. Right. So there's yeah. iterations of that card over time, right? So like, there's Factor Fiction, Gifts Ungiven. You know, draw yep. like draw effects, Spring Geyser, Stroke. Um, yep. There's you call this burst card draw. Um, but there's cards, and so you when, when you have a a kind of iterative you know even greed necropotence and bargain and and you know whatever um you know gristlebrand there are some things but there's some cards that are essentially so unique that they don't actually create a school in the hanian sense <laughs> like oath of druids there's just if oath of druids were banned from vintage there's really not a substitute for it yes there's yeah. show and tell but it's just a really unique card there's not like an oath school you know, where you have like, you know, I don't know, a three mana Oath of Druids that has some marginal upside and and some, you know what I mean? Or, you yeah. know, there's just nothing like it. Um, that, that archetype would simply disappear. Just simply yeah. disappear. Uh, Bazaar of Baghdad is, is, I think, similar. It just, you know, it's like it, Dredge could not exist without Bazaar of Baghdad. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's so <laughs> well, tailored yeah. to that. I mean, no, it's not <laughs> technically true, but in Vintage... It, it, it exists in other formats, but it would not be competitive in Vintage. That's right. Um, yeah. And I think, although I put Necropotence in a lineage of of decks from greed to you know to bargain so forth, it's nonetheless true that Necropotence is sort of des- unique by design. Oh, Doomsday is another example, right? Like, there's yeah. no analogy analogous card to Doomsday. It it literally creates strategic options that that nothing else provides. So they yeah. they don't fit into a school. It's not like the Xerox decks, which have this kind of cluster of options. You know, you, right. you ban Ponder. Okay, we'll use Preordain. You know, or sleight of hand, or whatever. You know, whatever. Then yeah. So even even breach has analogs. Yogmoth's yes. will at all. Yes, yeah. it's it's a, essentially a new Yogmoth's will. So what I'm saying is that um, treasure cruise and dig through time are actually substitutes because yes. we saw that treasure cruise is restricted. Okay, we're gonna play four digs and one treasure cruise, and the deck was actually better. It was scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and if they had done an inverse, and the people were like, oh my god, they actually hit the wrong card. Well, they had hit both. <laughs> Yeah. So they they're different, yes, but they uh architecturally and structurally support the same archetype. And what I'm mm-hmm. saying is that in that regard, seasoned engineer, white plume adventurer, and anointed peacekeeper are actually directly analogous. They structurally yes. support the same archetype. And if you take one of them out, the archetype doesn't collapse because he's the other to help prop it up. Yes. So yes, agreed. Whereas if you take out Oath of Druids, there's no substitute. Or Doomsday is restricted. We've seen that, right? We've seen Doomsday get restricted, unrestricted, restricted, unrestricted, and and yeah. each time the deck just disappears. So, um, <laughs> so go ahead. How does that bear on your evaluation it, of your Moxie? Then what it means is that the card is less important because it is a ah. yeah. It it in other words, the fact it's that, a cog. Yes, yeah. exactly. So I, well, I, I diminish the huh. individual utility of the card in its Moxie nomination. It's a little bit like, I don't know, 
an Academy Award ceremony where you have, let's say, a Best Actor category, and two actors are nominated for the Academy Award from the same film. Ah, they kind of, you know, and like let's say they were they played off each other. It kind of hurts. It, it hurts each the individual case for each of those actors because they're so tightly intertwined. You know, it's like I don't know. Imagine if, um, uh, well, I don't need to come up with examples, but no, I got I get you. Yeah. It it's kind of like the magic equivalent of value over replacement. Exactly. Yes. So let's contrast that with Boseju then, yes. though, because <sighs> Boseju has is also you know it's a disenchant in a long line of disenchants yes it's amazing because it's also a split card with a land and yes it's amazing because it's effectively uncounterable so that's the reason why it does what it does but these any deck that's using boseju basically existed already and in that slot it used something else like force of vigor uh, abrupt decay assassin's trophy um nature's claim etc so do you similarly diminish even though Boseju is so ubiquitous now, do you diminish its impact because of its easy replaceability? <sighs> I Honestly, it's hard for me to evaluate that question because I don't know to what extent... I haven't played the deck with Boseju, so I don't hmm. know to what extent it's, it's sort of like propping up that archetype and really pushing it up, or whether it's just sort of a marginal improvement of the next card. You know what I mean? So yeah. like, think about... Think about when when Snapcaster Mage hit hit the scene. Remember, we we saw it was like by it was by far the the card of the year. Oh yeah. Um, it there was already a deck. You know, Grix, Grix's control was already a thing. You play with Time Vault and Tinker and Yogwill. But it put it over the top because it gave it this new set of flexibility. You could snap back Bolt. You could snap back the, you know this and that. Yeah, all your situationally uh, interactive one mana cards became so much more amplified. Exactly. So. It wasn't that it took a dead deck and brought it to the fore and preeminence. It was a massive boost, though, to an existing archetype. And actually then just, it was sort of like widely played across the metagame. So I think the questions I would want to know are, how much of a marginal improvement was Bozeju for these DRS decks, number one? Number two, is it played in more than beyond that archetype? Number three, is it just a, marginal utility role player or does it actually have a major role in the metagame mm -hmm. those are the questions that i would like to know the answers to and i don't know the answers yeah and though that well would, and it's it's yeah it's incredibly difficult to answer those questions they're so nuanced marginal yeah and they're nuanced <laughs> and but it you know so you start with the numbers but then you have to have a qualitative component to it as well right i mean we've yeah. seen cards that have huge numbers but they're not necessarily strategically important um like lightning bolt Lightning Bolt can, like, I remember, was it 2012 to 2014 or 2015? Lightning Bolt yeah. was everywhere. It was, in, every, it was either in your sideboard or main deck of, like, almost every deck in the format. Yeah. But it wasn't strategically important. I mean, there were decent substitutes <laughs> for Lightning Bolt. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, and, and there was a decade before that where you yeah. would be caught dead playing a card like Lightning exactly. Bolt. Exactly. <laughs> it was completely worthless. Or consider, here's an interesting one, Kevin, Pyroblast. Ooh. Pyroblast is heavily played. But if it didn't exist... Little would change. You would just use Red <laughs> Elemental Blast, right? So interesting, very interesting. Yes. Um, Maybe the ultimate, ex the ultimate extreme of replaceability. <laughs> yeah, I mean, extreme of there's no, extreme there's of, no well, deck on. playing. Eight, there's no deck playing eight of that effect. Extreme of replaceability 
in the context of a card that's heavily played is yes. what you mean. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> that's a that, yes. That's an important distinction. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess the question is: Is Bazeju Pyroblast, or I, is I it? I think it is. Yeah. Uh, uh, not not quite, but I think it's it's much closer to Pyroblast than it is to well, Snapcaster White Plume Adventurer or <laughs> or Snapcaster Page. Yeah. Well, one other thing. One other thing. We've seen cards. I think one of the years Graph Digger's Cage was the biggest card of the year. Yeah. And Graph Digger's Cage was not it was a tac- it was a counter strategy card and a tactic, not a strategy card. Uh-huh. Which means to me that also diminishes its centrality in the metagame. Because yes. I I look I give a little bit more weight to cards that power decks rather than those that suppress other decks. So, just want to note that as well. And and I think Bazeju's role is sort of like a tactical card rather than an engine uh, diminishes its mm-hmm. role slightly in my... Now, it can be counterweight uh-huh. if it's just overwhelmingly, um, you know, if it's just like the best tactic ever, like a super disenchant, then I would be willing to give it the moxie. But that's just something, you know, like it's the difference between like, I don't know, necropotence and mental misstep. You know, it's like... <laughs> Uh, uh, well, mental misstep might be a bad example because it's such it's like force of will. It's so good. Um, yeah. But I guess yeah, the the difference between yeah, I guess Graph Digger's Cage is a good example. You know. Interesting. I mean, I would be willing to give it to, to Graph Digger's Cage because it's it's approaches misstep force of will is sort of like a crazy staple. But um, it's not the same thing as a factor fiction or a gush or a gifts ungiven or a necropotence or an oath of druids a card that sort of sits at the heart of a strategic plan and does something that really, you know, that's really powerful in advancing that plan or a doomsday. I, um, I, I'm with you, and I also want to go back to the narrative test. Okay. Uh, a couple of years from now, are you going to remember what year Boseju came out? Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> Would you? <laughs> um, probably not. I, I'll probably think head, it might. No. It was like, was it 2021? 2022? Yeah. <laughs> 2020? Yeah. <laughs> Well, the fact that it came out in a February doesn't help either, no. right? I mean, that's so close to the new year. We're not gonna. I'm not gonna remember exactly. Um, what's it's, left? Which is a shame. It's it sounds like an insult to the card, right? Which it's obviously not. But your point about all your points are good. Well, well, let's. What, let's. What's left is Shieldred. Yeah. Well. Well. So. So this is the thing. So if we go down this route, so Automaton we clearly can rule out because Shop just didn't have that great of a year. It had a very down year, right? Yeah. It's like. Um, and it was in, in, incredibly incremental in a way that, you know, so we've gone through decades now of incrementally additional shop creatures, and this one's just incredibly incremental. So sh- there is Shieldred, uh, but it, it came out late in the year. It actually came out and was applied to the Tinker Deck after the Tinker Deck had already was on the downslope. So it's hard, you know what I mean? Like the Tinker Deck yeah. peaked in Q, what, Q1, you said, or Q2, somewhere in between Q1 and Q2. It was Q1, yeah, yeah so effectively. I'm not going to give a card a moxie if it like is incorporated into things on the downslope. And I realize it wasn't just that. It, so yeah, it wasn't just the that. The question still... in my mind becomes, between the two major white initiative cards, is one of them significantly more important than the other? <sighs> that is... That is incredibly difficult to establish <laughs> in this case. Yeah. It, it, it's real easy to say that White Plume Adventure is, is significantly important because of its three-mana position. Yes. It's much more likely to... I mean, obviously, it's the tautology to say it's likely to come down in turn one. But I think practitioners of the deck and people who are familiar with it and or people who saw it, 
our coverage in the top eight of the of champs <laughs> would point out that season dungeoneers ancillary effects involving combat are just incredibly important to the way the deck functions yes and and people who play the mirror would be inclined to say that I'd much rather have a seasoned dungeoneer in play, and I can it's, totally it's support sort that. Of, it's it so reminds me of the dig through time treasure cruise. Treasure cruise <laughs> yes. looks like the more powerful card, and in the first few months felt like the more powerful card. But experience and insight and wisdom revealed it was actually dig. Yeah, which was also the totally more expensive agree. card, by the way, with the double blue. Yep. Yep. So I, that's ironically, I think that analogy bears out very well <laughs> in this case. Um, I think you're spot on that. And that makes it just confounds the analysis yes. so much more. You know, we, we have to go back. I think we have to go back to a, a subjective, intuitive fundamental. Yeah. What is the what are the best cards of this year? I'm I'm fine. Well, let's do this. I think are we going to have an unprecedented tie an unprecedented well, dual win <laughs> i think yeah i think we've done enough analysis i think we need to just award our moxies and let's just let the cards fall what they may would you like to go first or do you want me to go first uh sorry i'm i'm enamored with um uh the last university of michigan national championship <laughs> where we were in first place at the end of this season and we won our bowl game and yet we were granted a shared national title. <laughs> uh, so you might... That, that's what this feels like to me. That's To bring that sports okay. analogy back to a really annoying level, I apologize for that. Um, I want you to go first. Well, let me ask one last question. Okay. On a, I don't know, quarterly, a per quarter or per monthly basis, what is the actual comparative rate of, let's say, the adventurer versus... Uh, numeric, strictly numerically yes. speaking... If my estimate of 140 appearances for Boseju is right, that's over 10 a month. Over it's it's over 10 a month, but it's actually slightly less than the adventure creatures at which are technically at 12 and a half. Oh my god, this is as close as it gets. But yeah, but but because the Boseju number is an estimate, it's a real it's a real soft comparison. They're very similar, and they're both unprecedented numbers. But for a card to do more than 10 appearances a month for a whole year, yeesh. Okay, well. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to give my... You, you wanted me to go first, right? Yes. I'm going to surprise you. I'm going to give my moxie to Bezeju. Because <laughs> I think... I think it, it really... I think there was this element of Bezeju when it was spoiled that it looked absurd. <laughs> and I also <laughs> think... Here's something else. I don't have a lot of confidence that these white cards are going to be played five years from now. I do have a lot of confidence that Bezeju will be played five years. Very good point. Very good point. And another way to spin that is to say, if the White Initiative cards had been available for 11 months of this year, like Boseju was, there's no way they would be putting up 12 and a half per I month. I think that's number. probably true. The metagame would adjust. will adjust at some point. It may not have yet, yes. but it will. So yes. We're coming into them right at their, their you know the apex of their power, so to speak. And, and I don't want to overly value a card just because we're evaluating it at its peak yes um that's very compelling and i think that that last bit of analysis and commentary um is the deal breaker for me i am also going to give my my mock uh, i didn't you. want to persuade you i wanted you to make well, your commitments it, first it, but. It, it's a little persuasive on your part but also that analytical lens of of if 
these cards had been in play for the sure. same durations, yeah. which one would I be voting for? And I think it's hands down. There's there's no argument there. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. The point I made led to that, yeah. that uh, which was even uh, uh, more important yeah. because you're looking at the lens of the year. So, yep. all right. There you have it. Bazeju, card <laughs> of the year. Congratulations, Congratulations. Bazeju. All right, now yeah. let's move to set. So we've narrowed the sets down to Neon Dynasty, Streets of New Capenna, Battle for Baldur's Gate, Dominaria United, and Brothers War. Let's lim- eliminate the Brothers War. It's not. It's. It didn't even have yield a card that made our Moxie's nomination list. So, to- totally agree. That's out. Totally agree. That's four. Brothers War is out. Okay. I think the next weakest set, we can eliminate Streets of New Capenna. It has two strong appearances, Unlicensed Hearst and Ledger Shredder. But I agree with you that it doesn't compare in terms of impact with Kamigawa and Baldur's Gate. Right. Um, That leaves three sets. I think... And Dominari United is barely represented here. So that leaves... It's only representative is Shieldred. And I think while Shieldred is a great card, we can use our card discussion as a proxy for how she cannot make up the ground between yes. Kamigawa and Baldur's Gate. Well, I'm going to go... I'm just going to go straight for the... You, why don't you go for the Moxie Award? You, you, you name this one. You give this one, and I'll go <laughs> after you. So, for, for a little bit of a reminder, we started this way, so I'm just going to re- review for our audience. Kamigawa includes Boseju, the numerically, obviously, highest card, as well as Patchwork Automaton, a, a close second maybe for highest numeric card it also includes kamigawa commander technically which includes the cyber drive awakener and it also includes march of otherworldly light uh, a quality card and a role player that just doesn't have great numbers conversely baldur's gate has the the two initiative creatures obviously it also includes minskin boo which is a surprisingly high representation card for a short period of time not nearly to the scale of the initiative cards or, say, Boseju, but it had 14 appearances in its short lifespan this year of availability. So Minskinbu shouldn't be, I think, underappreciated. <sighs> this is very challenging because I believe that taken as a whole, Minskinbu pulls up Baldur's Gate from an already high point, which included the initiative. And I also think that March of Otherworldly Light and Patchwork Automaton and Boseju really pull up Kamigawa, right? These are multiple long-term, what I consider staples. Even though March is not a a barn burner, I actually consider it to be a a card that we will be considering years from now. Um, I think given all the ancillary fringe parts and the fact that we haven't that as we said initiative is not really fully baked in its effect on the format and it will i think diminish more rapidly over time i'm inclined to give the totality to kamigawa because of its lasting impact on the format okay is that your final decision that that's my final that's my final okay yes good we have a split i think (laughs) we're going to look back at this year and we're going to see battle for battle for baldur's gate like the mh2 or the modern horizon set it just created these crazy cards that that changed the metagame. <laughs> so I'm going with Battle for Baldur's Gate. Okay. All right. I love a little bit of variety in our opinions. I love it. Yes. So that brings us to the most challenging uh, award to quantify, the one that's <laughs> technically impossible to quantify, and that is the story of the year. Now, we don't have a lot of candidates this year because of how relatively calm a year it was. We do have a a mechanical story, so to speak, and that is the initiative taken as a whole. Not just 
you know, its implementation um, in these mono white decks and these in these mono white cards that we've been discussing. But as a concept, the initiative really took vintage kind of off guard, right? And by storm, it was collectively, I think, misevaluated by the the whole of Eternal Magic pundits, <laughs> ourselves included. Um, so much so that we're here talking about it retroactively as such an impactful thing, and we didn't even really consider no. it in our set review. No. I mean, we just we it's it's almost like a it Deathrite got, Shaman level of miss on well, our part. Well, it's the Jace the Mind Sculptor miss. That's yeah. That, that was the card that every reviewer overlooked. Cost too much <laughs> mana. It's not as good as well, I don't know what was the it was the three mana. Wasn't there a Planeswalker that did it? I don't know. Oh, it was a uh, Tezzeret. It wasn't as good. It was as Tezzeret. Tezzeret yeah. yeah, that we were comparing it to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tezzer just wins the game. What does Jace do? <laughs> <laughs> right, um, right. Yeah, it was it was that level of miss, no question. Yeah, it happens. So, so the initiative is a a key story in the format this year, and I think it, it's difficult to overstate how surprising it was and how impactful it's been given its effectiveness so far. Another story of the year, completely different in its nature, is the return of Paper Eternal Weekends. Not just North America, but obviously we have a bias, a strong bias in favor of North America. We definitely want as many internal weekends as you realistically can have, but there were, there were two this year. But it's a return to form, a comparatively successful one. Steve, you and I had are, are again, biased because of our uh, affinity for the event and its the surrounding culture, as well as our participation this year, not as players, but as commentators. Um, I've got a, a big soft spot for Eternal Weekend as something that's going to stand out from this year. Agreed. It was a very exciting top eight. It was a very exciting top eight. <laughs> it was. Uh, uh, what else do we have for stories? Well, I think there is the there is the matter of Magic Thirty and what it means for Vintage in terms of the reserve list, reprint policy, mm. card pool, all that sort of thing. Like, will it? Will the existence of these cards of power relieve some of the pressure from collectors or from old school players or whatever casual players yeah. from the Vintage card pool? That's an unknown, but it's a They've opened the door to that. That's a pretty big deal. And there was a lot of controversy about that, about the price point, the availability, the celebration of the 30th anniversary, Hasbro's stock price, and how they, that interacted with the reprint reprints generally. There's a lot of issues baked into that, that one thing. So um, I think that's yeah. a pretty big storyline that was definitely relevant to Vintage. Totally agree, though it hasn't borne out as any real kind of impact to gameplay, right? It's no. not like there's, well, sadly, there's simply not enough of this product to have a difference no. on vintage play, literally speaking. But I agree with you that, and we discussed it at great length in that episode, I agree with you that it is potentially symbolic and a point that we will look back upon as uh, that was the year that that, that, that toll gate I was going to say floodgate, but that's not right. It's not a floodgate of anything. It's it's a milestone. This is the year that that milestone was passed, and we could see it as a root of many potential futures that are good for the format and the game. Uh, shall we shall we cap our nominees at those three stories? I think so. I think those are the stories of the year. So okay. I, I, I a little selfishly, I think I'm already interested in excluding the initiative as a as a my nominee. Yeah. And I'll tell you why, and that's because while the it may stand out in the future as oh yeah that's the year that Mono White won because the initiative was so was so brand spanking new, but in a couple of years that's still going to be a memory. But there's a very good chance that there are more initiative cards 
a couple of yep. years from now. There's a very good chance that the mechanic becomes diluted or it's something we're all just used to and like, oh yeah, somebody got the initiative on turn one. Here's what I have for that, right? Like it, there's a very good chance that it just kind of becomes a little more integrated in blase. Um, that's not going to make you know the impact of this moment any less, but I think it's going to diminish strongly over time. Whereas something like Magic 30th Edition there's a very good chance that it kind of accelerates over time. Like, oh, you remember when that we did that first and now it has ballooned into X, Y, and Z, right? Now they've got 30, 35th edition of Arabian Nights, right? Or, or whatever comes next. I just kind of think that that's, it's going to kind of grow as opposed to become integrated. And I'm excited to see the way that grows. I'm, I'm kind of not excited to see the way the initiative grows. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to, to, to going by the wayside a little bit, becoming a little more blasé. So that's my opinion on where we stand with that and how I look forward and expect to look back on this year. Well, so do you want me to give my, my moxie or do you want to just wrap up uh, I, what I, you started? Well, um, I may as well continue. I, I also, I think while I'm very happy about Eternal Weekend, it's very difficult for me to give an award to something which is a return to form, Right. Like it or not, this Eternal Weekend didn't do anything that others haven't already done, right? It didn't forge new ground. It just allowed us to, you know, return to a thing with, you know, a little bit more control vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, you know, masking and things like that. It just allowed us to kind of return to a thing that we had. And unfortunately, it wasn't done terribly well also. I, I have a hard time celebrating a thing that, for example, didn't have its own sponsored coverage. I'm grateful for what I got to do, and I'm great, grateful for Anzi to uh, bring us in, and I, I loved it. But at the same time, it, you know, that's not the story for everyone. The story for everyone was that the coverage was was uh, you know had to be fan service, yeah. <laughs> right? The the player count was low for obvious reasons. Um, you know, I don't want to diminish anyone's performance uh, because the event itself was fantastic and and it was very fun. But at the same time, this is not going to go down in history as the best Eternal Weekend by far. <laughs> it's only going to get better from here, you know? So it's not deserving of the kind of celebration, I, I think. That said, I have a real hard time giving an award to the product that was Magic 30th Edition, right? You got to choose. I don't wish to celebrate that either. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm a little stuck. I, I'm legitimately stuck. When it comes to the narrative, is this going to be the year of initiative? Yeah, kind of. Is it going to be the year of Magic 30th edition? Almost certainly. I mean, it's a tautology. It's the 30th anniversary, right? It really wasn't, uh, though. But go ahead. Depending it, on who yeah, you ask. We'll I know, I know. <laughs> we'll see what 2023 has in that regard. <laughs> but I honestly think this is the story of the year in that we're going to look back and be like, remember when? Yeah. This was, this was the Fair beginning. Enough. It's the beginning of an era. I legitimately think it portends a lot more. In, in a good way, though. I, I legitimately think it portends a lot more in a good way. I think it is an erosion of the reserved list, which is something I've personally wanted and been lobbying for for literally decades. And so it's it's with a kind of wry smile, ironically, that I'm going to give my moxie to the Magic 30th Anniversary Edition and everything that it means for the future. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Kevin's given the final <laughs> moxie of 2022. I'm going to give my moxie, I'm going to slightly broaden the story, not to white initiative, but to the emergence huh? of white initiative and the dominance it had on the most important stage and the surprising hold it's had since. And just the totally new and unusual way in which it, you know, does things. It's just 
we've never seen anything like it before. It's a new mechanic, you know, going yes. into the Undercity and having this like little strange map that you interacts with the game. It's just totally different. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to give my moxie to that, that story. The, the, the emergence, the surprising, no, shocking emergence and then domination of, of the vintage metagame by a mono white deck <laughs> is it's a really <laughs> stunning story that it's mono white that it's creature based and that it's that it's something that everyone overlooked so yeah it's i yeah. I, I think it's going to leave a deep impression so that to me is the mox well i respect that your use of the word shocking uh, uh spawned a thought for me and this is by no means like uh, meant to diminish either of our selections. But at the beginning of this year, January 1st of 2020, this year, last year, 2022, at the beginning of that year, if I had given you two, these two items and said, there's going to be a new mechanic, it's going to cause mono white to win the yeah. champs <laughs> and, or there's magic, you know, wizards is going to reprint beta in a non-tournament legal <laughs> form and sell crazier? it for a thousand dollars like which of those two would you say is gonna happen uh i mean yeah and i don't know the, there's no right answer of course yeah. for me magic 30th edition it would have been the more, more unlikely outcome yeah that's uh, fair but that's a combination of many many factors the price not with you know and at the top of that list but your point is well made though i mean no one saw the initiative coming it was shocking it continues to be a little shocking and it's it's definitely noteworthy. There you have it. This is why I love the boxies. It, it, you know, I love debating these kind of things with you and using subjective and objective measures to try and just talk about this this game and this format that we love. Such an interest. This has been a really fascinating discussion, Kevin. This might be one of our most interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's not quite as data driven as our. I mean, there's certainly a lot of data here, but it's not quite as overwhelming as the previous years. But there's well, yes. so many nuances, so many qualitative aspects and things to compare and think about. This is really fascinating. <laughs> well, well, I totally agree. 2022 was and a rough year, but uh, it certainly yielded some interesting discussion items for vintage. And so by way of wrapping up, Kevin, what do we have to look forward to next year? What's the next big set? Well, the next big set will be uh, Phyrexia. I think the title being All is One. We have only a couple of previews uh, so far. Let me go back to the homepage of Scryfall and get it. Phyrexia, All Will Be One is the, the next big set. And uh, we don't have very many previews right now, uh, though that's obviously coming very soon. Um, but Phyrexia is, you know, our last trip to Phyrexia yielded Phyrexian mana. Yeah, I was going to say, we're, we're not, not going to see that again. <laughs> no, they're not going to make that mistake again. But we, I think we do know that this trip will include a return of. It hasn't been officially spoiled, so I don't, I don't love using this as an example. But some of the preview stuff that's been leaked has included some return functionality of um, poison, um, which is obviously a Phyrexian-based mechanic, and so we may see some reintegration there. If poison has never been a factor in vintage, no. but not since, not since legends. <laughs> Yeah, we will see if there is any kind of new implementation of it that uh, either, you know, a card that's that's overpowered and playable in Vintage that involves poison. I'd be very surprised if we see people dying to poison in Vintage. You know, that's not ever. true. There were the uh, Sliver deck, the, the Flash deck that had the poison victory for like... Oh, that's so like funny. You're right. Yeah. The Flash Hulk deck that used because the most condensed package yeah. was, a, was a poisonous Sliver. Gosh, I'd forgotten about that. How ironic. <laughs> 
Um, anyway, the, the only prediction I have is simply that it'll be very interesting to see if they implement poison in any way that is meaningful in vintage, Doubtful. right? Well, you could see, I could see something like giving yourself poison counters as a cost yeah. being something that would be applicable in vintage because of how unlikely it is to take poison damage in the format. So I think there's mechanically some options, but whether or not they're going to do that is, is anyone's guess. You know, that sounds dangerous to me already, just saying it. Blightsteel Colossus. <laughs> but we'll see. Oh, you're right. Blightsteel, of course. How could I forget? The one-shot robot being as such because specifically it has infect. I'm so glad you thought of that, Steve, because it would have been it would have been annoying to think of it after <laughs> that. <laughs> well, that's what I'm here for. Encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of vintage. You have the encyclopedic knowledge of the card pool, so... <laughs> there you go. Uh, all right. Well, I, I am very much looking forward to subsequent set reviews. I mean, a return trip to Phyrexia is always interesting, no matter what. Uh, thank you all for listening to episode 110 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this show, please rate us on iTunes so that other players can find our show. As always, and until next year, we wish you many insane plays.